Brothers and sisters, do you ever pay attention to how people walk? Once a friend saw me uh, unexpectedly at church, and they told me uh, that they had been waiting for me. And I was surprised. I didn't know how that was possible because I hadn't told anyone that I was coming. And they said that they knew I was coming because they saw me walking there with my dad. And I wondered how that was possible because they must have seen us from a long way off. Well, they told me that they recognized me because of how I walk, even from a very far way away. Likewise, in seminary, uh, I once stumbled upon some people who were guessing which student or professor was coming up the stairs uh, based just on the sound of their steps. And uh, one of my friends mentioned this past week that their parents always amazed them when they were kids because somehow they always knew which kid had snuck out of bed the night before. Uh, Of course, they just heard how they walked. And our walks actually say a lot about us. Uh, You can look up all kinds of theories online if you want about what you can know about someone just based on the length of their stride or the weight of their step or whether they veer a little bit left or a little bit right when they're walking. And in our text today, Paul wants us to think about our walk. More than that, he wants to call all who believe in Jesus Christ to walk like they believe in Jesus Christ. Our text is all about learning to walk. And so we'll see that we're called to a worthy walk, a humble walk, and finally, a united walk. First of all, a worthy walk. At the very beginning of our text, Paul calls us to sort of a a clunky phrase. He calls calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the wording might sound a little bit strange, but the concept is a very familiar one. All sorts of professions, they call you to a certain standard of conduct, don't they? You can think of police officers or politicians or lawyers or, I was told, even dental hygienists. They're called to live a certain way, uh, both in public and in private, uh, so that they don't hurt the reputation of their profession. They need to acknowledge that if they won't live in the way laid out in these terms, that they might lose their job or, or even their license that they work so hard for. And John Piper, using, and talking about this passage, he used the example of a judge. So a judge can get in trouble for a lot of things that, in the grand scheme of things, they seem very insignificant. They just don't seem like that big of a deal. So judges have gotten in trouble for accepting small gifts from people. Uh, one judge was investigated because he used his title in a, on a commercial for a business. He used it to recommend a business on an advertisement. Uh, I heard of one judge who was suspended for using his title even when asking people to donate to a charity. And the reason why, of course, is because the office of a judge is a very high calling, isn't it? The U.S. Code of Conduct for Judges insists that they avoid all impropriety or even the appearance of impropriety. So they need to not do anything wrong, but even avoid the appearance that they look like they might be doing something wrong. They, might, that they even appear that they're doing something dishonest or showing partiality or doing anything immoral. And the reason why, again, is because a judge is a very high calling. As a judge, you're representing not just yourself, but you're representing the court. You're representing the whole legal system. And as John Piper goes on to argue, we need to realize the privilege and purpose of the Christian calling is far greater 
than the privilege and purpose of a judgeship. Isn't that remarkable? But isn't it also true? Being a judge is an honor. It's a privilege. It comes with responsibilities. What about being a Christian? Being associated with the law? That's a high calling. What about being associated with our great God? A judge needs to not just talk, but walk in a way worthy of his calling. Well, Paul says here, we need to both talk and walk in a way worthy of our far higher calling. And what is that calling? Paul mentions it over and over again. Well, what is the calling? Paul has explained it in Ephesians chapter 2 and the whole beginning three chapters of this letter, actually. As we read in chapter 2, he reminds us all that we used to be separated from God. But now, he says, for all who believe in Jesus Christ, all of us, we've been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is your calling. To live as someone near to God who could come there only by the blood of Jesus Christ. In our reading, Paul also said, you were dead in your sins, but now you've been raised to life with Christ. And not just raised with him, but you are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We're not judges seated on this earth, but we are seated in heaven with Christ. That is your calling. You're not dead in your sins. So Paul calls us not to act like we're dead, enslaved by our sins. We're immensely valuable, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we heard. So we're called to live like it, not acting like we're not valuable or like our lives don't matter. We're living in and for a heavenly kingdom. So we're called not to act just like we're living for an earthly kingdom. And that is all of our calling. By grace, God chose you. God loved you. He sent his son to purchase you and worked faith in your heart, uniting you with him. And now you're not God's enemy, Paul said. Now you're God's friend. You're his beloved son or daughter. That is your calling. Live like God's beloved son and daughter or daughter. Of course, this is where the analogy with the judge or police officer or even dental hygienist it just completely falls apart. Because in those professions, you actually do need to live a life that's worthy of your calling or risk getting fired. But us, we know, we can't live up to such a high calling. How could we? Not on our own. We didn't earn this position like a lawyer earned their position. How could we earn such a high position as a child of God? Now we try to start to work in a way that's worthy of this calling, God helping us. And to start is all we ever get. This immensely high calling is all of grace. And that's actually Paul's point here. Because unlike a judge or a politician, we don't earn our place with God. We can't. In the whole first three chapters of Ephesians, it's remarkable. Paul only gives one command. Only one exhortation. He only tells us to do one thing. He tells us to remember. Remember that we were far from God. Remember that we were dead in our sins. But all the rest of what Paul has been talking about up until this point, the text that we just read, was all about God. It was 100% about God's work, not our work. It's about God who, before the foundation of the world, loved us. He chose us 
And he sent his son to die for us. And now Paul says, therefore, because of what God has done out of pure grace, because Christ was worthy, and you who are united to Christ by faith, you're worthy in him. Now Paul urges us to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in the next three chapters, that's when the commands and exhortations come. Paul follows after just one in three chapters, now with over 40 commands, telling us how we can begin to live as worthy people, as redeemed people. And it's worth noting for a second just how Paul calls us to begin this walk as well. Remember, of course, Paul was an apostle, right? A really well-known apostle. He had great authority and influence in the early church, maybe especially in the church of Ephesus. As you might know, Paul was there for over two, maybe almost three years, and he had great influence there. He also had a great love and care and concern for the people he was writing to here. And so how does Paul tell these people to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ, worthy of the good news of salvation through Christ's merit? He says, therefore, because of all God's done for you, as we said before, all God's done for us in Christ, he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He doesn't say, I, as an apostle, command you. But I, as a prisoner for Christ, urge you. What I get here is a picture of a loving parents. Uh, of course, often your parents could command you to do something. Maybe sometimes they do command you to do something. But here, Paul takes a different approach. He urges us to do something. Something he deeply cares about. Something he believes in to the point where trying to live a life worthy of his calling for Jesus Christ, he's ended up suffering himself. He's ended up in prison himself. And now Paul urges us as a fellow disciple, one suffering for Christ. He urges us, you believe in Jesus Christ. You believe you're saved by pure grace. You're now God's dear child. He says, if you really believe this, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. This high, high calling, this immense privilege, so much higher and better, more worthy than being even an earthly judge. Can you imagine somebody urging you to do something? Maybe, maybe you've experienced it before in your life. Someone's urged you. Maybe especially someone who loves you. A parent or a grandparent or a friend urging you to please, please do something for your own good, for, for God's glory, what have you. If someone urges you like this, it sticks with you. It sticks in your mind. Someone passionately, earnestly, persistently trying to persuade you. This is what you have to do. This is what you need to do for God's glory and for your own good. Paul here is urging each of us Strive to live in a manner worthy of this calling to which you've been called. I wonder if we share the same passion for holiness as Paul does, the same passion for living our lives worthy of this calling, this immense gift that we have, the same passion for representing our Savior and friend Jesus Christ well. This is something that we need to work on, God helping us. And Paul spends the rest of his letter explaining and fleshing out just what this walk worthy of Jesus Christ looks like. And where he starts is by urging us to learn to walk humbly. That's our second point. 
So Paul is calling us to walk in a way worthy of this immense calling of being God's own dear children. Now what would you expect that to look like? What would you expect him to call us to do? Thinking about all Christ has done for us, God's work in this world, we might expect Paul to call us to sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor. Or maybe uh, to all go out and be missionaries like him. Maybe he'd tell us to all be hermits living our lives in the desert, trying to stay far away from sin and temptation, just studying God's word. But here Paul commands us to do something very different, to begin to walk in a worthy way. Here he simply calls us to walk. Isn't that an interesting picture? Walking is a, a slow thing. It's a steady thing. It's kind of a mundane thing, isn't it? You think of our, this call to walk, this call to live, as just a call to live our lives going to work, our lives doing our chores, raising our kids, going to church, volunteering, to live our lives walking as a Christian, as someone who follows Christ, who believes in him, who believes that he loves him enough to redeem him. Of course, Paul here is calling us to live as those who live all of our lives in the sight of Christ. And how can we do that? Well, he tells us that we can start to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And of course, we can see so clearly here, screaming out from every word Paul just mentioned, Paul is calling us to live like Christ lived for us. Paul is calling us to live for Christ how Christ already live for us. How do we start to learn to walk in a worthy way of the calling we have in Christ? We look to Christ himself. And then we take baby steps, trying God helping us to follow in his footsteps. I get the picture of a little boy trying to follow his dad's footprints through the snow, trying to hop from one step to the other and stumbling a lot, but doing their best. What Paul mentions here are first humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And it's worth noting that up until the time of Christ, outside of the Old Testament, humility was basically never seen as anything but a very bad thing. Slaves were humble. Servants were humble. But great men, they weren't humble. But Paul says, I urge you, now that you know Christ, you love him and you're saved by him, walk as he did. And Christ walked so humbly, for us. Jesus laid all his glory aside, coming down from heaven to become our slave. And now we learn from him, counting others better than ourselves, because Christ counted us better than him. And so Paul says, be humble like Christ. And then he says, be gentle like Christ. And Dane Ortland reflects on these two words so beautifully, reflecting on Matthew 11, verse 29. But throughout the Gospels, we get a wonderful picture of who Jesus is, and just what he was like, and what he came to do. But only one time does Jesus tell us what is in his heart, what his heart is like. What's the core of his being, Dane Ortland says. And to our joy, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't tell us that he's austere and demanding in heart. He doesn't tell us that he's exalted and dignified in heart. He doesn't even tell us that he's joyful and generous in heart. Do you remember how Jesus describes his own heart? 
He tells us that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The word lowly there being the same as the word humble here. He's gentle and humble in heart. And now we are called to be gentle and humble in heart as we follow Christ as well. Next, God tells us through Paul to be patient and to bear with one another in love. So we're called not to be harsh, not to be reactionary or violent, but kind and understanding as Jesus is kind and understanding and approachable even to the greatest of sinners, even to us. So as one commentator says, this is an exercise that all of us can do. Uh, When we wake up in the morning, when we go to deal with our kids, maybe when we're coming home from work, before we can go, we go into the day, just reflect for a little bit on the past few hours, the past day, the past week, or just the past year. And consider for a moment just how patient Jesus has been with you today. Think about just how gentle Jesus has been with you today. How much he's bared with you in your weakness. How many times, even today, Jesus Christ had to forgive you, even for ways you didn't realize that you failed until right then. How often Jesus allowed you to come back to him in sin and ignorance, and he's never rebuked you, but forgiven you and welcomed you with open arms. Reflect on that before you interact with your kids or your spouse or with your coworkers. And we're called to live a life worthy of this calling. How many times has Jesus put up with you? That's a, it's a shocking question. And that's where Paul ends up here. He tells us to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, putting up with uh, uh, others or with each other. And the word here for bearing is a very interesting one. It's also used elsewhere even for bearing or tolerating or enduring physical persecution. What Paul is acknowledging here in a beautiful way, is that this, dealing with people gently and patiently and kindly, it's not always going to be easy. Isn't that true? Living with sinful people, being married to sinful people, being the parent of sinful people, or being raised by sinful people, this can be incredibly difficult. But Paul calls us to endure it. He calls us to bear with one another. It doesn't say bear with one another in pride or in bitterness or in anger. He says bear with one another in love. And this is an important calling, brothers and sisters, because people every week, maybe every day, all the time, people are going to let you down. Kids here, your parents are going to let you down. It's going to happen. Probably already has. Spouses, your significant other is going to let you down. Parents, your kids are going to let you down. And everyone, your church family, your office bearers, your pastor, he's going to let you down. Maybe he already has. I'm sorry. It's true. Maybe, our, well, we're all weak people. We're all sinful people. That's not an excuse. We just are. We've got to admit our weakness and our failings and own up to it. And go to Jesus for forgiveness. Because thankfully, nobody here is called to be anyone else's savior. Isn't that a relief? You're not called to be anyone's savior, and I'm not called to be anyone's savior either. We already have a perfect savior, Jesus Christ. 
And now he calls us, all of us together, through Paul, to put up with each other, to bear with one another in love, forgiving and covering up the weaknesses of others with love. Again, the motivation is Christ, because how much did he put up with us? In a shocking verse in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says of the people and even of his disciples who have failed to truly believe in him time and time again, he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? And later we see the answer of how long Jesus bared with his disciples, didn't we? How long did Jesus bear with them in their unbelief? For God's chosen ones, we read in the book of John that Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus never gave up on them. The disciples were so weak. We saw that so often in our series on Mark, didn't they? They had so many shortcomings and so many failures. Jesus never gave up with them. He endured them to the end. He endured with them. He bore with them in love. Now we're called, look to Christ, follow in his footsteps, bear with one another in love. Christ endured with these people even unto death. And finally, by God's grace, they did truly embrace him and follow him in faith. And as Jesus is humble and gentle and patient and kind, as he bears with us in love, that's how we begin to learn to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That's uh, why uh, we need to look back to Jesus all the time and learn how we can walk a little bit more like him. But of course, when looking to Jesus, Paul, and any of us, we could have picked all kinds of different qualities to highlight. We need to ask, why did Paul highlight these qualities first? Humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. And it's because these qualities are absolutely necessary for Christians like us to begin to live for Christ together. That's a huge emphasis in the New Testament. What Christ is building is his church, a community, a community, a communion of believers. And that's what we'll see in our final point. Christ calls us to a worthy walk and a gentle walk, and lastly, to a united walk. Finally, Paul calls us and he urges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there's a fascinating word there, and I wonder if you noticed it. Paul doesn't tell us to make ourselves united as a church. He doesn't tell us to become one as a church. He doesn't tell us to attain unity as a church. Paul calls us here to maintain our unity. We already are united, that means. That's the only possible way to maintain something, is if we already have it. And isn't that a beautiful thing to reflect on? We heard a few weeks ago talking about the communion of the saints in Lord's Day 21. Now, I hope you remember this imagery that we had of being united with Christ. That we are parts of his body, him being the head. But we're also one another's members as well. We're not just united to him, but to one another too. This unity that we have with God, and this unity we have with each other, it's a gift. It's given to us by Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ had to pay an immense price for it. And now he gives it to all of us. To everyone who repents and believes in him. There's a wonderful illustration of this priceless gift that a friend gave to me once. Uh, the story, it purports to be true. If it is true or not, I don't know. Either way, it's a beautiful illustration. An American missionary named David Morse once went to India 
to preach the gospel. And after some time there, Morse had made some great friendships, but very few people had come to believe in Christ. And one day, David Morse's closest friend, who was an elderly man, told him that he was moving away. He was getting old, and before he died, he was going to go on a pilgrimage. And as part of his pilgrimage, he was going to crawl many miles on his hands and knees. And the idea was that this was a sort of penance to earn the favors of the gods. Before he left, this man was giving away his possessions. And so he went to visit Morse at his house, and he brought with him a small wooden box. Morse's friend explained that this, uh, that this box was very special to him. And he gave it to Morse, and when the missionary opened it, he saw inside of it a breathtaking pearl. Morse's friend explained that the pearl had been acquired by his only son, who was a pearl diver. He had seen the pearl and dove down to get it. But while he did, he stayed underwater too long. He got the pearl, but later he passed away because of the water he had inhaled while retrieving it. This man was so thankful to Morse for his unwavering friendship, he wanted to give him this pearl. It was an emotional moment because he knew he would never see his good friend Morse again, and he wanted him to know how much love he had for him. He wanted to entrust him with his most prized possession before he went. And Morse was suddenly struck with inspiration, and he said to his friend, My friend, this is such a beautiful pearl. Let me buy it from you. I will give you $10,000 for it, or I'll work to pay the rest. And his friend was shocked and offended. What do you mean, he asked, this pearl is priceless to me. It's a gift. But Moore said, it's too much. It's too beautiful. The pearl's too wonderful a token. I have to work for it. The man responded, you don't know what you're saying. You could never possibly pay me for this gift. It costs the life of my son. Whatever you give me would be an insult to me and to him. I only offered it as a gift because of how much I love you. And Morris was choked up. And he said, my dear friend, don't you see? That's exactly what you've been saying to God. God is offering you heaven as a free gift. It's so great and so priceless that no man on earth could possibly buy it or earn it. If, his li- if he could, his life would be millions of years too short. Eternal life for us cost God the lifeblood of his only son to earn our entrance into heaven. In a million years, in a hundred pilgrimages, we could never even come close to earning that entrance. All we can do is accept it as a token of God's love for us, sinners. Of course, I will accept this pearl from you in deep humility, praying to God that I might be worthy of it. Won't you do the same? And his friend said to him, for years now, I could not believe that salvation was free. Now I understand some things are too priceless to be earned. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to earn this unity, not called to earn this peace with each other or with our God. It's a gift from Jesus Christ himself. Paul tells us that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between us and that he has brought us back to God. 
At the end of our text, Paul tells us, in Christ, we are united, even though so often we don't live like it. Just look at that astounding list of all the things we have in common as Christians, all a gift just given to us by Jesus Christ in verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body, the church, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus won this unity for us. This is what he wanted to accomplish. Before we, he died, we read in John 17, Christ prayed to the Father for what he wanted to accomplish, and in part what he prayed for was unity in the church. I learned this past week that some people call this prayer in John 17 Jesus' unanswered prayer. His unanswered prayer. That, of course, can't be true. That's a horrible lie. No prayer of Christ went unanswered. The Father wouldn't leave it unanswered. But Christ accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Brothers and sisters, we are one. And now God calls us through the Apostle Paul to be eager to live for it. The word eager there, another fascinating one. It means to strive. It means to do everything possible. It means to break a sweat, to maintain this unity that Christ himself bought with his blood. That's how we can learn to walk worthy of our calling in Christ. So often we can get focused on individualism and my personal walk with Jesus Christ. That's not what Christ had in mind. He wanted us to walk together. He wanted us to walk side by side. So often it's so easy to criticize the church or minimize the church. So easy to criticize and minimize other believers. We can criticize the songs at church and the preaching and the leadership and just other Christians. And not even in a constructive way, but a destructive way. A way that doesn't challenge and sharpen and build up. It only hurts and tears down. When we do that, we're not working, walking worthy of our calling. When we do that, we're not treasuring and loving and maintaining this gift Christ has given us. We're not loving and treasuring and maintaining the people that God, that Jesus Christ, cares so much about. We need to remember this is Christ's church. It's his body, it's his bride, and he loves it, and he's working on it. It's a work in project. It's a construction site. He's shaping it and molding it and protecting it. He literally died for it. And so now we're called also to love it and to enjoy it and to work hard to break a sweat to see it grow. We'll hear more about that next week. Not just grow in numbers, but to grow in love, to grow in unity, to grow in maturity. That's how we can begin to walk worthy of our calling, seeing how we can serve one another, being willing to be served by one another when we need it. Sometimes we need to reach out and ask for help. That's part of how we can work, uh, be worthy of our calling in Christ, part of the church. It can be hard. It can be a hit to your pride. But that's how we can learn to work together and to walk together, focusing on Christ and his great gift and learning to walk in a worthy way, in a humble way, and a united way. Walking in a way that's so different and so unique that people see us even from very far away. And they immediately recognize that we're walking a little bit like Jesus Christ. Amen.